With his Tectonic Theater project, he has created some of the most galvanizing and widely seen theatrical productions of the past 15 years, including Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde, The Laramie Project, I Am My Own Wife, and 33 Variations. He has also directed plays as diverse as Lady Windermere's Fan at Williamstown and Rajiv Joseph's A Bengal Tiger in the Baghdad Zoo for the Center Theater Group in Los Angeles. And he is currently in rehearsal both for a national tour of both parts of the Laramie Project as well as a new tectonic project at New York's New Victory Theater, El Gato en Botas, which will play a limited run in New York at the beginning of October before going out on tour. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I always enjoy an opportunity to talk with Mises Kaufman. Hi. I'm delighted to be here. Now, I very carefully uh, used the Spanish name for your current project because I thought if I'd read all of those projects you'd done before and then used the American name, it would be like playing which of these is not like the other. <laughs> but in point of fact, El Gato en Botas is Puss in Boots. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that you were doing that at the New Victory, which is noted for its family-oriented programming, I said, what is Moises Kaufman doing with Puss in Boots? How did you come to be doing this project? Well, there there are two things. One is that for the longest time I've been fascinated with fables, Um, fables as a narrative form. You know, if if you look at history, fables are one of the oldest narrative forms and one of those forms that has really survived and continues to be an important narrative form that we all look to at different times in our as writers as directors as, as you know theater makers so so that was one thing this fascination with fables um, and these fascinations with fables had led me recently to direct into the woods Stephen Sondheim into the woods which I did at uh, Kansas City rap <laughs> and so so there is this for, for some reason at this moment in my life, I'm, I've been really exploring fables and, and what, are, what is in fables and what, why, why do we keep looking at these stories? What, what is it that they have to tell us? Um, and do they – can they still play a role in a kind of contemporary dialogue with contemporary audiences? Well, certainly Mary Zimmerman has explored some of the same territory, maybe not the same fables, but some of her work goes in that direction absolutely, as well. Absolutely. And I think that, that what is exciting is, you know, even when you do something into, like Into the Woods, you know, our production was a very, very uh, – kind of Jungian production that really dealt with the kind of psychology of what these stories tell us about ourselves and tell us about the community in which we live. Um, So when Gotham Chamber Opera approached me with with this uh, opera, which is from the 1940s, Spanish opera by Javier Monsalvage, a a beautiful Spanish composer, I I was listening to it and I said, well, um, I will do it if I can find a way in that is theatrically interesting and theatrically daring. And at that time, I met the people uh, from the Blind Summit Puppet Company. In which London. Are in London. They're London-based. And they are these fantastic revolutionaries um, who are doing some of the best puppetry in the world. Um, I don't know if you saw Anthony Minghella's Madame Butterfly. They did the puppetry for that. Um, they've worked a lot with Simon McBurney of Complicite. So they're, they're famous for using a lot of um, Eastern techniques like bunraku and, and making it very, very um, 
available to Western audiences. So they're designing the puppets and in the piece, everything is a puppet except the two lovers. So the two lovers are, are human beings and the rest of it is all puppetry. So once I, I, I started talking to them and having conversations about them, I knew that there was a way into this opera and that it could be this kind of magical exploration into the world of the story. Well, I'm pretty opera ignorant, but the only opera that I know of that at least is thought of as being done regularly for children is Hansel and Gretel. Yes. Is this a piece of material that is in fact regularly done in opera repertories for it's children? Not. It's going or? to be the American premiere oh, of this piece. Okay. So, so the fact that I don't know it, in this case, I'm not ignorant. I'm no. average. Yes, yes. And, and what's interesting is that, that you know, there's a lot of songs by Montsalvage that we know in America, especially there's a thing called Five um, five songs that he that he wrote that were really popular. But this opera has never been done in America. And hmm. so it's not part of the repertoire, nor was it written for children. It's not an opera for children. Um, it's a very whimsical, mischievous opera. Uh, but I think that the production that we're doing will be, um, you know, hopefully it'll be family friendly, but hopefully it'll just be, you know, beautiful if we do our jobs right. As I said, you're in the midst of rehearsal mm -hmm. for it right now. Mm -hmm. What is the process for you in in looking at at this work? How much of this is about the puppetry? How much of this is that you're dealing with the actual singing? Because so often in opera, everybody focuses on the singing, and yes. I always feel like stage directors yes. who may do extraordinary work somehow they they're secondary in opera. Yes. So how's that going for you? Well, I, I think that that is one of the biggest problems with opera is it's basically beautiful voices. Um, with a little bit of decor, you know. Um, but if you look at the form of opera, it's one of the most thrilling forms in the world. Um, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to see beautiful opera beautifully acted. When those two things happen together, it is magnificent. There's nothing else like it. Um, and as you, But as you say, that hardly ever happens. What you usually get is beautiful voices with beautiful decor. And they were hardly ever more than recitals. Uh, that are pretended to be staged. So for me, one of the first things that we did was that that I in, in casting these opera singers, I really wanted to cast opera singers who could act and who had acting chops and we could really, really delve into rehearsals. So, you know, what we start always doing is we start rehearsing the text and I don't let them sing for the first, you know, few days. Hmm. We're just rehearsing the text and we're trying to deal with what's happening on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, just like you would do with any other text. Um, and then once you do that, then when you come back to adding the music back into the process, there is this added knowledge and added process that, that, that enriches the work and that makes for something real and living occurring between the singers, between the performers. So that's the first thing we did. And then, you know, working with puppets is, has been an, a real education because, you know, <laughs> you can say, well, this, this, this scene is about this and this is what happens. But the puppets can only do what the puppets can do. So it is about listening what they can do. And it's learning a whole new vocabulary about how do puppets sing? How do puppets live? How do puppets, you know, talk to each other? And, and what we're finding is that, yes, they can do all those things, but they can do so much more magic, you know, because puppets can fly, puppets can uh, become dismembered, become remembered. Um, so there, there, is a, there is a freedom 
there's a there's a paradox. It's a it's a, at the same time very constricting and very liberating. Is there a particular style of puppetry that's being used here? Uh, several different styles. Um, the cat in Puts and Boots goes through different kingdoms as he pursues his his objective. And um, we're, we're playing with this idea that every new kingdom is a new puppetry vocabulary. Hmm. So we use bunraku and we use many different other kinds of puppetry. And I saw that in the 10 days that it's being done at the New Victory, there would be a couple of performances mm -hmm. entirely in Spanish. Yes. Presumably it was written in Spanish. Yes, the opera is in Spanish. So, But it's been translated. Yes. So it will be mostly sung in English and and. I think it's equal the number of times that it's going to be performed in Spanish and the same mm -hmm. and the time that it's going to be performed in English. And that was exactly what we wanted it to do. We wanted it to be open to a bilingual audience, you know, to audiences who could speak, both could understand it in Spanish and could understand it in English. But when you talk about the cast understanding it, mm -hmm. is it the same cast or is it double cast? We have double cast and the person who's playing the cat, there are three singers playing the cat. And they are all going to know it in both English and Spanish. Huh. And so one night they'll do it in Spanish and one night they'll do it in English. Fascinating. Do you does the English translation newly done for this production? We used Was the, it something that you influenced? Yeah, we used the existing translation, but I did tweak it. Uh, Neil Gorin, our, our musical director, and I spent a lot of time tweaking it to make sure that it didn't sound like Spanish from 1940s Spain. But as a writer yourself, mm -hmm. did you take any liberties with the text or was it really just about making sure it was a good English translation since clearly – you speak both languages. Yes, it was about making that, sure that it was a good English translation and that it was um, understandable and legible more, mostly. You know, so yes. <clears throat> of course, there very often there are operas that are sung in English that still have supertitles. <laughs> yes, I, we're we're debating that right now whether whether they'll have supertitles or not because you know in in opera, no matter how much you enunciate, the music is so sweeping sometimes that it's very hard to to connect meaning to the words. We're working very hard on doing that, but I don't know how how successful will be. Very interesting. Well, normally I now say let's go back and about where you got your start and I get a story about somebody on a farm in Iowa who, <laughs> you know, whose parents had cast albums. Um, your coming to the theater is, is certainly a, a slightly different story. You're originally from Caracas, Venezuela. Mm -hmm. You went to a yeshiva, mm -hmm. uh, a Jewish school. Mm -hmm. um, was it – I mean yeshiva is sometimes used in different ways. Was it actually religious training, yeshiva, yes. as if you were being groomed for the rabbinate? Well, it wasn't being groomed for the rabbinate, but it was a yeshiva, which is an orthodox, very orthodox Jewish school where you spend half of the day learning uh, secular subjects and half of the day learning about religion. Hmm. So after the yeshiva, you went on to university. When did theater come into this? Because I don't think of a, a yeshiva as <laughs> um, being a hotbed. You know, again, I know the American model. I don't imagine you were putting on the high school play, no. and it certainly wasn't Guys and Dolls or Music Man. <laughs> no. So what? Where? Where did theater come in? Well, I think that there's a couple of things. Yes, while I was at Yeshiva, Venezuela was very fortunate at that time because we had one of the most important international theater festivals in the world. So every uh, every year we had some of the most important um, and, and most uh, 
daring and revolutionary directors and writers and theater companies coming to Venezuela. So we had Peter Brook come, we had Tadeusz Kantor come, we had Grotowski come, we had Pina Bausch. And you list those names. If, if I read this correctly, they all came in one year when they, you were 14 years old? No, no, no. They all came in uh, di- different oh, years but in different okay. festivals. Okay. But yes, from the time I was, I don't know, 13, 14 till I was 17, I, was, I grew up you know, watching their work. Did you go to these motivated, self-motivated or was it your parents said, we should go to this? It was both, I guess. You know, for, uh, first time probably it was my parents and then it was it – was, curiosity and interest. What, what was fascinating was that the first time I saw a realistic production, I was shocked. I thought this is so avant-garde because everything I had seen until that moment had not been realism or naturalism. It had been, you know, Peter Brook doing something radical or Grotowski or Tadeusz Kantor or Pina Bauer. So it was, it was a real – unbeknownst to me, I was getting an incredible theatrical education. Given that you were in a city and in a country that had an appetite and understanding mm-hmm. for this kind of work, mm-hmm. what motivated you to leave Venezuela and come to the U.S.? Well, what happened was that that, that by the time I graduated high school, I was really lost uh, and I didn't know what what I wanted to do. So at the time, my family said, well, business administration is something broad enough that can uh, allow you to do many things. So I I enrolled in the university to study business administration. And uh, the first class was at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was accounting. And uh, I don't know if it was the time or the subject matter, but at the end of the first class, I had a major panic attack. (laughs) And I ran downstairs and I said, do you have any extracurricular activities? And they had a theater company at the university. So I joined the theater company as an actor and I was fortunate enough that the man – the director of the theater company was a man who, was, who went on to become one of the most important directors in Venezuela. And he was himself influenced by all of these great you know, European and American directors who had you know, done the work that had, they had brought. So I was five years with that company and I got um, – so by the time I left the university, I had been acting for five years. Hmm. But at that time, I realized that that um, that I was much more interested in creating the whole stage event than I was in creating a single character. So that's why I decided to come to New York because I wanted to learn the craft of directing. Did that kind of training not exist? Um, no. And does it exist now in Venezuela? Because you've been here for a little for bit. Uh, uh, there are classes and courses, yes. Mm-hmm. But it really was a case if you wanted that background, yes. you, you had to go. So you came to NYU. Yes, and NYU at the time, well and still, has a, an experimental theater wing, which is where I studied. And what excited me about that was that they were teaching a lot of the same uh, techniques and ideas on which I had been brought up, mm-hmm. you know, stuff by Grotowski and Peter Brook and Augusto Boal and, and people, you know, who were thinking of theater in terms of an art form um, and, and, and how to push the boundaries of the art form and what is it that you can do in the theater that you can do in – you cannot do in any other medium. Was Anne Bogart running the company, the no. experimental theater? No, Anne Bogart had left Mary Overly. Was uh-huh. running the experimental theater wing, who, as you know, was the person who created the six viewpoints. Hmm. Um, and it was in, it was a fantastic time for me because you know I already had some training, but I really needed to start formulating my own ideas and my own techniques and my own way of thinking about the work. How did you get accepted as a director? 
I got accepted as an actor, but the whole time I was there, I was directing work. Okay, so you you slipped in yes. under one pretense, but immediately went to doing the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you got out mm-hmm. of NYU, it seems, if I've got the chronology right, that you fairly quickly formed the Tectonic Theater Project. Yes, I was very fortunate during my time at NYU. I was I was directing a lot of Beckett. And I was directing a lot of Brecht, and I was I was directing a lot. And at that time, the great Arthur Barto was the dean of the school, and he he had come to see everything, and he was incredibly supportive. So when I finished, when I when I finally finished, I never graduated from NYU. I finally said, okay, this is enough. Now I'm going to go. And I said to Arthur, so I'm a director. So you were done. You were. I was done. I wasn't finished. <laughs> and I went to Arthur, and I said, Arthur, you know, I'm a director. How do I how do I direct? And he said, Moises, if you want to work in America, you're going to have to start your own theater company because nobody's going to hire you. And I was very offended. And I said, what do you mean? Do you think that my work is not good? He says, no. <laughs> he said, I love your work. But the problem is that you are exploring certain things that you're going to need your own laboratory and your own theater company in which to continue to explore those things because nobody's going to pay you to do the kind of intense research that you're interested in. Well, that was the best advice anybody ever gave me. So I left NYU and I formed Tectonic Theater Project. And, you know, till now it has be, it has worked as a laboratory where we – whenever we tackle a new play or a new project, we're always questioning, you know, what is theatrical form? Yeah. What kind of work can we do? How How do we push forward what happens in the art form as opposed to just focusing on the next play that we do? I read – your definition of tectonic mm-hmm. uh, that you gave it as the art and science of structure. Mm-hmm. So the word was very consciously chosen. Yes. Um, I also read, and I couldn't tell if this was a quote from you or a comment from the journalist who wrote the article, but that the company's work is a copulation of form and content. Was that you? <laughs> yes. So, so what is there – since the issue of form mm-hmm. is inherent in both of those statements, what is it about the form that you're trying to do? Well, I think that above all things, I'm a formalist and I am really interested in questioning you know, how do we use the stage to all its power and all its glory? How do we really explore – what is theatrical vocabulary? What is a theatrical vocabulary? What is a theatrical language? And and part of, of, of that comes from a curiosity that so much of the work we see is either realism or naturalism, which are really 19th century forms. You know, when Stanislavski does The Seagull, you know, we attribute that to be the birth of naturalism. And that was a gigantic revolution. But now, because we're so influenced by film and television, we do so much realism and naturalism. And so my question is, what are the other theatrical vocabularies that can continue to inject life into the theater? I mean, I I also think a lot about people like O'Neill when he does Strange Interlude or people like Miller when he does, you know, Death of a Salesman or, you know, that these are people who were themselves asking questions about, you know, what is theatrical form and how do we continue to explore what theater can do? So the purpose of the company is that, is to, to continue to explore you know, what are the theatrical vocabularies? Since you bring up O'Neill and Miller, who most people would think of as naturalistic playwrights, mm-hmm. probably not 
entirely correctly. Mm-hmm. You, you said before how shocking seeing your first naturalistic show was. Mm-hmm. What was your first naturalistic <laughs> show? It was Private Lives. And was that here in the in U.S.? Venezuela. No, it was in, in Venezuela. Huh. It was a local production in Spanish of No Cowards. And I was I, – I thought – I think I had the same experience that, that people in Moscow had when they saw the seagull. This is radical. This is revolutionary. But it's interesting, the idea that you would say no coward is naturalism. I know. Because way- it's probably as stylized um, <laughs> a, a work as, as – you know. You're without right. without seeming to be experimental. No, you're absolutely right. I think the production that I saw was particularly naturalistic and and also in comparison with the work that I had been seeing up to that moment felt really realistic. Interesting. Interesting. So once you formed Tectonic, yes. in the early years, um, because I think people's perception is knowing the works that got the most acclaim, yes. you were not company necessarily – having works written or the company creating the works or you creating the works. You did The Nest by Kreutz. You did uh, Naomi Azuka play. How were those choices coming to you? How are you choosing that work? Well, at the beginning, during the first four years of the company, we were interested in staging other writers who themselves were questioning theatrical form. So, for example, Naomi Izuka was somebody who was really pushing the boundaries of what could happen. Um, you know, Kreutz, of course, with his super realism in the nest. Um, we also did Sophie Treadwell, Machinal, who was an American expressionist. Um, we did a lot of Beckett at the time because we were fascinating with especially his later pieces, the shorter pieces that are really kind of theatrical machines. So we were really, you know, learning from, from, from people who themselves had been questioning this this idea is a form. And who were we? Was it a company of actors? Was it a company of pe- other directors? <laughs> it's a great question. It's a question we're still struggling with after <laughs> you know, 18 years of being formed. We define ourselves as a, as a community of artists who are interested in the same questions. So it's, art, it's writers and actors and directors and, and set designers and, and, and theater, theater people who come together – to question certain things. So, for example, Michael Emerson was in Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde. Then when we started doing the Laramie Project, he said, I would rather kill myself than go interview somebody. Hmm. So he wasn't in the play of the Laramie Project, but when we made the film, he participated in the film. So we, so it's very um, permeable. It's a very permeable company of artists that are brought together by a certain questioning. Is it a fluid company in the sense that there have been people who come and go or people who are sort of unofficial members? Yes, absolutely. Because in looking at your website, it seems to be a core group that it said were the artists. I believe there were seven names in yours, not in that particular list, but obviously assumed to be there. Um, Was – you said there were other directors. Mm -hmm. Did other directors direct for – Tectonic, or has it always been you? It, it, so far, it's been me. Right now, one of our company members, Lee Fondakovsky, is writing and directing a piece um, called Casa Cushman about the 18th century actress Charlotte Cushman. So, so that is happening more and more. But, but I also think, for example, when we do something like Laramie, you know, all the actors and the writers and the directors, we all go to Laramie and we talk to the people of the town. And what's interesting is that at that moment, we all become interviewers. And when we bring back and we present the material to each other, we become directors because we're doing these little presentations, these stagings of the text. So, so it's really about trying to go back and questioning what is a theater artist 
And I think that, that we are in a culture right now where everything is so specialized. You know, you go to school to be a lighting designer, and that's what you do. And what we're interested in is in coming into a room together and kind of forgetting those titles and seeing, you know, what can we do together? So at what point mm-hmm. did either the decision get made or did it evolve that instead of doing work by other playwrights, you mm-hmm. would become an author? Well, I think that, that after doing four years of, of other playwrights' work, I realized that if we were really being rigorous about this questioning of, of theatrical form, we had to deal with the issue of text. It wasn't enough to keep staging other people's works. We had to deal with our own text. We had to deal with this issue of text. And at that time, somebody gave me a book called The Wit and Wisdom of Oscar Wilde, just by pure coincidence. And at the end of that book was the transcripts of the trial. And what was fascinating was that that in the transcripts of the trial that, that were at the end of that book, most of the questions were about Oscar's writing and about his plays and about his novels. So that the lawyer asks Oscar Wilde, I'm holding in my hand the picture of Dorian Gray. Here you say, and he begins to read to Oscar Wilde from his novel in a court of law and saying, is this moral or immoral? So it immediately hit me that this idea of an artist being questioned in a court of law about his art was one of those pivotal events of the history of art of the 19th and 20th century. At the time I wrote it, there was also the, the great Maplethorpe scandal uh, with the NEA. So it, it, it resonated very much. But what hit me was that the trials of Oscar Wilde were as much about him being a subversive artist as they were about him sleeping with men. Mm-hmm. And so um, I decided that I wanted to write that play. And what happened is that as I was doing the research, um, first I read the transcripts of the trial and then I read the biographies of everybody involved in the trials, the autobiographies or the narratives that they had about what had occurred. Well, of course, very soon I started realizing that they all contradicted each other. So that Oscar Wilde would say, this is what happened at the trial. And Lord Alfred Douglas would say, that's not what happened at the trial. This is what happened at the trial. And then Oscar Wilde's lawyer would say, no, that's not what happened at the trial. This is what – and in my naivete, I thought that by the time I was done with the research, I would know who was telling the truth. Of course, at the end of doing the research, all I was left with was all these narratives that sometimes fought each other, sometimes coalesced into a whole – And formally, for me, that was very exciting because then the question became, how do you write a play about the impossibility of reconstructing history? Hmm. How do you write a play in which you don't choose one prevalent narrative, but you include all of the different um, antagonistic narratives and let the audience decide what the ultimate narrative is? I seem to recall at the time when the play was first done, there were those who suggested that the play was a collage of the transcripts Mm -hmm. of the trial. One thing you haven't mentioned here at all is transcripts. No, absolutely. What we did is we we used the transcripts and then we used all of the other original sources from the period. Mm -hmm. So the transcripts would be what was said in the trial, but everything that happened behind the scenes – was where where the thing would begin to contradict itself. And furthermore, even in the transcripts of the trial, one witness would say, this is what happened. And Oscar Wilde would say, no, that's not what happened. This is what happened. You know, so this idea that that, histor- that there's a certain impossibility in reconstructing history. Well, 
reconstructing is an interesting word because you were constructing this on a foundation yes. of a variety of materials. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that you read a few biographies and wrote a play about Oscar no, Wilde. No, it wasn't it's, that. So it it had it had a journalistic yes. uh, element to it. Yes, it was it was, it was it was a desire of trying to come up with a theatrical vocabulary that used people's actual words um, and that pitted them up against each other and 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 that meant that the core of the drama was people's desire to have their version of the story triumph over all others. Hmm. There's a note in the published edition which says that the performers should portray the characters in the play without disappearing into the parts. That, going back, to, it, it's we spoke about form and content. That's a form issue. Yes. Um, why? Why wouldn't you want the play to seem as realistic as possible? Because the way that we dealt with this issue of the multiple narratives is that. The, the event is a group of actors reading from books. And if you remember the production, there was a table full of books. Mm-hmm. And people would pick up the book and say, Lord Alfred Douglas said this. And then a contradictory version would be picked up by another actor who would say, no, 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 wait a minute. The lawyer said, why? And you saw both books being held up. Um, and this was this was very much influenced by the Worcester Group at the time. Hmm. Um, they had done a piece where where they had used books in as a, in in that way. Um, but to me, what was exciting was that it is a company of actors trying to revisit history, hmm. a company of actors trying to reenact a story and finding out that it is impossible to come up with one single version of events. And so that's why the acting style had to be coherent with the kind of ideas. Of the production, and you mentioned Michael Emerson earlier. Um, it certainly was for for people in the theater. It was the show that really introduced Michael to everyone. Mm-hmm. Michael doesn't look like Oscar Wilde. Yes, and was it a conscious choice to say again because you didn't want people to disappear? We're not going to have someone look like him. Yes, it was much more important for me that Michael was able to play Oscar Wilde, that, that he looked like Oscar Wilde. Hmm. And Michael was able to play Oscar Wilde. Interesting. Now, the success of the show, which wasn't immediate, it really took some pushing to get people out there, you know, out there, you know, to get them to come below 42nd Street yes. to see it. But once it was taken up, you did productions of it in multiple places. You yes. did it four or five times, including London, I believe. Yes, 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 yes. Were you working with the same company all the time or were you constantly working with new actors? Well, because they were all happening simultaneously, we had to work with, with, with new actors all the time. So that the most of the company of Tectonic stayed here and then we would do it with new actors in different spaces. So for you as a director, what was it like if you say it's simultaneous? Obviously, there's some degree of sequential yes. um, production. Yes. But what was it like to rapidly go to do 
another production and another production and another production of the material. It was a mixed blessing. Um, the beginning, it was very exciting, very thrilling to have the work done in so many places. And in that year, I think it became one of the most produced places in the country. It really did its thing. So that was very exciting. It also made me realize that we're not machines. You know, by the time I was done, I had done the play five times in a row. I wanted to kill myself. It was, it's impossible to keep yourself fresh. You know, as, as, as directors and as writers, you go into the rehearsal room because you want to discover things, right? That's, that's the great joy that hopefully you're in the room with, with smart, talented actors and smart and talented artists and you all discover things together. Uh, well, if you're doing the same production five times, you know more than anybody else in that room all the time. And it becomes about teaching. And, and, and the second time you're still learning, the third time you're learning less. By the fourth time, it, it, it was very hard. By the time we got to London, I was burnt out. You also had the writer in the room all the time. Yes, yes. Um, did the writer just go take a nap by the time you got to the fourth or fifth production or were you tempted each time to, to tweak it? In, in the, I, I think by the time we got to London, in London we tweaked it a little bit more because I was there and I met Oscar Wilde's grandson and he gave me some new material and I was able to look at some stuff that was very exciting. But by that time, you know, I think that, that because I come at writing from a director's perspective, um, when the director is in the room, the writer uh, takes a backseat sometimes. After the great success of Gross Indecency – there was the horrifying case of what happened to Matthew Shepard. Mm -hmm. And four weeks after the incident mm -hmm. and after the, the media attention that attended upon it, you and the other members of the company went to Laramie to be in that community and start interviewing the community mm -hmm. about what had happened. It mm -hmm. strikes me that Granted, there's already been an enormous intrusion by the media, mm -hmm. but you went with an idea that was, if not intrusive, even more deeply personal. Mm -hmm. Tell us your story mm -hmm. so we can portray your version. You talked about the multiple versions mm -hmm. um, of the wild story, but that you will be put up on a stage telling that story. What? How did you – Get yourself into that community. How did you get them to accept you? Yes. Well, I think what happened was I was in London when when uh, when Matthew Shepard was killed, and um, and it was very interesting because then I got back a few days later, and what shocked me the most, even more than the crime itself, was the kind of attention that this crime was getting. You know, there's over one thousand anti hate gay, anti gay hate crimes a year. That are reported. So God knows how many others that are not reported. But for some reason, this one resonated. This was an event that seemed to capture the nation's imagination. It seemed perhaps – it's an unfortunate part of the American psyche, but because it was so grotesque. Yes. Well, I think there are many reasons why it became – yes, certainly part of it was the kind of symbolic nature of this young man, uh, you know, strapped to a fence in the middle of a Wyoming prairie. There was something iconic about that image. There was something very religious about that image. You know, there was a, it was a crucifixion of sorts or people saw it as a crucifixion of sorts. So there was a way in which the image resonated with the country. You know, we're a very, very visual country. 
Um, but for whatever – I also think that had Matthew Shepard been killed that way, exactly the same way 10 years before, he wouldn't have gotten the same kind of attention. Mm-hmm. We as a country were in a place where we could have that conversation. Um, and so to me, having just done gross indecency, you know, the trials of Oscar Wilde at that time were considered the trials of the century. The trials of Oscar Wilde was a watershed historical moment in Victorian times. And what struck me when I started reading the transcripts of the trial was that the transcripts were a record of that society. Not only how they felt about homosexuality or how they felt about subversive artists, but how they felt about um, education, how they felt about religion, how they felt about government, because people at the trials were talking about all of these things. So the idea that, that this kind of very potent event forces people to speak very personally and very deeply about all the big ideas that are happening in their culture at any given time was what drew me to say, if we go to Laramie now, because they, because this event has been so powerful in their day-to-day lives, we might be able to gather a document that records not only how Americans feel about homosexuality, but how Americans feel about all of the big ideas that form the pillars of our culture at a given time. Now, I don't know the other members of your company, but I, I've got to ask. Here you are, a Latin, gay, <laughs> Jewish man mm-hmm. going to Laramie, Wyoming, yes. saying, open up the your deepest thoughts to me yes. about what has just happened here. Yes. Was it a lengthy process to get the townspeople to talk to you? It was. It took us a year. And um, – or over a year, really. Well, what happened was I came back and I said to the company, let's, try, let's go to Laramie and try and do this. And because we're an experimental theater company, it felt like a correct experiment. I said to them, even if we return and there is no play there, I believe that going there makes sense. Can a theater company go to a town, talk to the people of the town, come back and construct a narrative with those voices? Because certainly Cornerstone yes. is a company that would go into communities and work with the members of the community and have them put on a show exactly. that's somehow related to their show. But in your case, you were going to draw out from the community yes. and present it yourselves. Yes. And and as a theater company, present the play and then bring it back to Laramie and show them the play. Mm-hmm. So how, what did we do? You're right. We were we were all terrified, and uh, and we had and ninety percent of us had never conducted an interview before. So what I did is that I called the head of the theater department at the University of Wyoming, and she was very aware of gross indecency, and uh, like me, she's a Brecht. So she loved Brecht and she understood very well what we were going to do. So she was incredibly helpful. When we got there, she did a a dinner for us in which we started meeting people. And you're absolutely right in saying that the town had been so bruised by the media. Um, What they saw in us was we didn't want the sound clip. We didn't want the the two-sentence clip of what they had to say. We wanted to sit with them for an hour and listen to what their experience was. We were asking the question, can theater play a part in that national dialogue by portraying the most intimate part of this experience? Hmm. You know, in theater we have the time, we have the ability – And also what we found is that actors are great recording devices because actors specialize in empathy. Actors train in empathy. When you're playing a character, any actor will tell you that what they're doing is they're empathizing with the character, even when they have to play a serial killer. There has to be an empathy. There has to be a desire to live in the character's shoes. 
In that way, when our actors were interviewing people, there was that desire to profoundly understand, understand experience, understand thought, understand um, actions, so that the people of Laramie, I think over the course of the year, uh, began to trust us and began to realize that we didn't want the soundbite. We wanted to understand. Um, and unbeknownst to us, we also provided a space in which they could speak, you know, in which they could be heard. There is the danger, however, and and to draw a parallel, um, there is the danger of the company inserting its own thoughts or influencing the stories as they're told. And and the parallel I was thinking of is Truman Capote going yes. to that town in Kansas yes. to write in Cold Blood, yes. and how he his own character ultimately yes. became part of the story. Yes. You've presented Laramie yes. where you see that it is actors. You, you yes. are very aware that this this is a troupe of actors yes. that has gone to, to do this. Yes, Howard. I would go even further. I would say that there is no act of either journalism or, or this kind of theater. Our views, the writer's view will always be in the work. Always. There is... There's no such a, such a thing as objective observation. Anybody will tell you that the moment you observe and narrate something, you become the creator of the narrative. Because of that is why we introduced the company members as characters in the play. Because we wanted nobody to forget that it was a theater company made of New York bohemians, some of whom were gay, some of whom were straight, some of whom were Jewish, Latino, and gays, you know. And we came with our baggage, and we came with our pre prejudices, and without our pre with our preconceptions. And so the form that we came up with of having the company be a character in the play was a way of holding ourselves up to the same form that we were holding the people of Laramie. We were there. You could see it. You know, the person who played me played me with a very, very thick Venezuelan accent, you know, and, and that with that comes all the baggage that that means. So I think that there was a real effort. And what was amazing was that when we took it back to Laramie, there was this really extraordinary thing that happened, which was that, you know how in school they always tell you that the purpose of theater is to create catharsis. When was the last time you went to the theater and really had a cathartic experience? I mean, you can count it in the fingers of one hand. But when we were to Laramie, when we went to Laramie and performed the play there, it felt like a like you know, like what Greek theater must have felt like. That it was you know a group of artists talking to a community about itself using their own words. So it was an incredible, incredibly powerful event. Did everybody like? Hearing their words. What was interesting was that when we got there, um, you know, as a director, you become very, very finely attuned to audiences and how they sound. And so when, you know, whenever you do a play and an audience comes into the theater before the show, you can hear the audience and you more or less know how they're going to behave during the show. You, you get to know what, how audiences behave. Well, the audiences in Laramie came into the theater and they were hardly speaking. They were, there was this, this, you know, hushed whispering amongst themselves. There was a sense of something that was that was kind of be difficult for them. Well, the lights go down for the play to begin and the audience stopped breathing. You could have heard a pin drop. And then the actors come on stage. And I know my actors very well and they weren't breathing either. So there was nobody in the room that was breathing. The play begins and about, I don't know, two pages in, they get their first laugh. It was a moment that somebody laughed. 
And the moment that they laughed, all of a sudden something broke and everybody was breathing again. They understood that, that yes, that we were going to be portraying what we saw, what we heard. Having the company be characters in the play liberated the people of Laramie because he said, oh, okay, we're all, we're all on stage together. You're on stage and we're on stage and that's where we're meeting. Um, and then what started happening is that whenever somebody would speak, you would hear like murmurs in the audience or, or laughs in pockets of the audience. Well, that was because the person who was being portrayed on stage was in the audience surrounded mm. by his friends or family. Um, at the end of the, of the play, uh, there was this applause, the likes of which I've never heard before, mm. because it, was, it wasn't applause. It was this guttural sound of stumping feet and applause and, and people crying. And it, was, it was a catharsis. And the actors were incredibly touched. So, so there was a, it was a, both communities coming together. And, you know, what was, what was interesting was that, that all of a sudden I, I got such hope in what theater is capable of doing. And, you know, later we ask all the people, you know, did we portray you correctly? Mm. You know, because it's very easy in this kind of work to take somebody's words, you know, exactly what they said and pit them up against somebody else's words and completely change their meaning. Right. But again, as a show that was then produced by many other companies subsequent to the Tectonic production, those people – and the portrayals of those people became dissociated. Yes. It wasn't the direct one-to-one of the actor who did the interview Correct. portraying it. Yeah. Then it just became about actors playing characters. So anybody who didn't see your production of Laramie yes. saw – a fundamentally different type of theater. That is correct. And the event there, you're absolutely right, changed. Mm-hmm. The event of seeing our company do the work was one event. The event of seeing all the other companies do, do the same play was different. Why? Because there was one step removed. However, you know, as people who do theater know, if the text is correct, it carries within itself the clues to how it, it is to be performed. And what has been amazing is that the more I see other companies perform it, very quickly you hear the same cadences hmm. and the same blocking and the same performance just because the text carries it within itself. You know, even in performing it ourselves, we weren't interested in mimicking what we had seen. We were interested in capturing something about the core of the characters that we were portraying. I had asked Anna Devere Smith, who of course does mm-hmm. similar kind of work, although yes. she performs all the roles herself, whether she had ever created tapes for people doing her shows so they could hear the original voices, which only she knew. Mm-hmm. Has, was there ever a temptation for you to do that? Never. So it's truly let them create their own. Now, life has a funny way of not having beginnings and ends <laughs> yes, um, as cleanly as a play has to. Yes. Was that the reason that you chose to go back to Laramie 10 years later? And create – it was called an epilogue, but it's really a play in its own right. It is a play in its own right. Um, No, it wasn't wasn't because I felt unfinished. It was because when we were there the first time, we saw a town that was so affected by this event that I really wanted to know – when we left Laramie, we thought – this is going to be a town that is really going to transform itself into something else because of this happening. And I just had the curiosity of 10 years later finding out if they had. Hmm. So 
now you're working on a tour that will present both of the shows? Yes, and it's a very ambitious thing. It's going to be almost six hours of play, both parts together. And so you're going to be able to see part one one night, part two this second night, and on weekends you're going to be able to see both parts in a marathon. And when is that going to be seen? Uh, It's starting next month. Wow. So it's going to do a seven-city tour. And it's going to end at Arena Stage. And um, and then after that, hopefully come to New York. We don't have a New York date yet. And how much of the company doing that is the company that originally did it 10 years ago? Um, right now, about half. Hmm. Hopefully when we get to New York, it will be the entire company. Wow. So when you went back to Laramie, yes. were the interviews done by the same group of actors? By or? half of them, I yes. See. So, yes. So now it's, it's sort smaller. of a mix of, of people. Yeah. Fascinating. Um I hate to keep jumping ahead because no, you ahead. spend so much time on, on Laramie. Um, next up um, is I Am My Own Wife. You've gone – you go from sprawling yes. docudrama to a piece that is, a, is cited as being a tectonic developed mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. But the script was by Doug Wright, yes. not by Moises Kaufman. Right. Um, it required a single actor yes. to play all of the roles. Yes. Um, how how is that a tectonic project mm-hmm. in that it would seem to have only engaged you yes well it was a tectonic project in that it used a lot of the techniques that we've been developing in working with dog ride in crafting the text um, when we went to Sundance the first time with the material, Doug had spent all this time with Charlotte von Malsdorf, and he had a, a, you know boxes and boxes of pages of what Charlotte had said, but there was no play. Um, and what we were able to do in Sundance is to really play between Jefferson, Doug, and I um, and to really use a lot of the techniques of how do these kind of documents begin to tell us about a life in creating a life. So that we got there and three weeks later we had a very, very rough sketch of the first act. And it was really working very closely with Doug in allowing him and, and, and inspiring him and encouraging him to go into what it was like. As you know, when he first met Charlotte von Malsdorf, she was a, a German transvestite that had survived the Nazis and the communists in a pair of heels. And he, for him, he was a kind of heroine that had survived two of the most oppressive regimes of the last century. Um, but the more he – and he was determined that he was going to write a play. But then as he started learning more and more about her, he found out that she might have been – a spy, a Stasi spy and a collaborator with the uh, German secret police. And so Dog became kind of – had a writer's block and felt, how do I do this? I cannot write a play that condemns this character I love so much. And so part of what we did at Sundance was to say, well, let's go back to the beginning. Tell us why you love her. And and it became important that Dog, the character – the dog, the person, become a character in the play. So that the play is as much about the life of Charlotte von Malsdorf as it is about, once again, how we construct history. And how do we, you know, I think that in Gross Indecency, we were asking the, the, the question, how do you reconstruct a trial, an event like that? In, in I Am My Own Wife, I think Dog was asking the question, how do you reconstruct the life of one person. How do you reconstruct identity? How do you reconstruct culpability? How do you reconstruct, you know, how do you, how do you measure? How do you judge a person? And of course, what's interesting is that the first two pieces, Gross Indecency and Laramie, are about multiple 
perceptions yes. of a singular event. Yes. In the case of Charlotte von Malsdorf, she reinvented herself. Exactly. And then truth or possible truth revealed itself. Yes. But so it, it's different than a bunch of outside views yes. going to a singular person who was who was transforming themselves even as the play was going along and then who Doug had to transform. Absolutely. And what, what was interesting, one of the ideas that Doug Wright had very early on, because as you know, uh, Jefferson Mace had to play Charlotte, but he had to play almost 50 other characters. And an early idea that Doug has was that there would be no costume changes, that everybody would be wearing, that it would just be the dress. Yeah. So then by <laughs> the way he says this is that by extension, everybody in the play becomes a transvestite. And it was partially one of the things that he was exploring. Charlotte von Malsdorf created the character of Charlotte von Malsdorf. You know, it wasn't even his his name. Mm-hmm. His name was Lothar Berfelder. So Charlotte von, von Malsdorf is a fictional creation of this character. And so, so exactly what you say is true. It is – this was a narrative about how we construct our identity, how mm-hmm. we construct our personality, how we construct – the the persona that then we make interact with the world. We spoke about the fact that by the fifth time you did Gross Indecency, you were pretty much done. Mm-hmm. Um, I Am My Own Wife had extraordinary success and yes. Jefferson played the role in so many different places and countries. Yes. Did you go every time to put up the show or at a certain point did it become – Jefferson's show and tech people went and you took it out of the trunk and and he he was the guy. Well, I hope if I did my my job right, by the time we opened the first production, it had become Jefferson's show because mm-hmm. you have to, you know, especially when you're doing one man show, one person show, you have to own the show. You have to be so. But yes, when we, after we did it in New York, it went on a national tour of of a dozen cities. I went only to a few of those. Then we did it. We brought it to Venezuela. I did that with with Jefferson. I did that, and then we took it to London, and I did that. So I did a few, but I was very careful, trying not to burn out because I had such a bad experience with the end of Gross Indecency. Well, and when I talked to him uh, a number of years ago, he said, you know, it was a particularly lonely experience when you are the entire cast because had it not been for his wife joining him virtually the entire time, he would have, you know. He could talk to the tech crew. He could talk to to the stage managers. But it's not the same when when you are truly doing a show by yourself. It was it was it was uh, Olympian what he did. I don't know how he did it. it. Whenever I would go visit him backstage, he would always start telling me stories about the characters that he was playing fighting each other, <laughs> and he 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 always had a, a new piece of gossip about one of the characters <laughs> sleeping with another character. So he had to make all this fantasy life in order to to supply some sense of reality for himself. Thirty three variations, which seems. And, and it's a terrible way to say it. Seems the most conventional of of the the major Moises Kaufman tectonic plays, in that it it looks like a play that we're used to seeing. Was that something that was developed over time and through the tectonic pro- process? Completely, yeah. It took us three years to to work on that play. Hmm. And uh, what's interesting is that there is a kind of trajectory that that you can actually see, you know, Gross Indecency were trial transcripts, 
uh, Laramie Project was um, interviews. Then um, I Am My Own Wife, Doug Wright, took the interviews, but he, you know, created a lot of his own text. It was a step a step removed from what we had been doing. And he says that, you know, there's a program note that says some of the text is Charlotta, some of the text is what I remember her saying, some of the text is text that I invented that she would have said. You know, so so it, it is a very strange hybrid. Um, I am my own wife. But it really excited me because it opened doors for me. And then when I started writing 33 Variations, you know, I started reading everything that Beethoven had said. And then Doug Wright said, you know what? You're going to have to write the role yourself because there's not enough there that you can actually, you know. And that was a great blessing to have Doug Ray say, okay, go and, you know, write it yourself. You've already had the experience of writing. Now, you know, now you have to fictionalize and now you have to take the next step. So it felt like a very organic process. And I love that you say that it was the most perhaps traditional of the plays when in reality it's – Three stories together that happen in different time periods, and 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 the stage operates as this um, kind of very very liminal space where where characters in the past and in the present um, who have similar experience ha- are able to share with each other mm-hmm. in a way that the reality of the stage is not the real the, a quotidian reality, but a heightened reality of, of 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 a very internal process of what happens when somebody gets sick. When you take a play to Broadway, Mm -hmm. there's a whole new set of expectations. It's not that your shows hadn't had commercial productions, but they hadn't been on Broadway. You brought 33 variations to Broadway and you put a star in it. Yes. Did that alter the work, Mm -hmm. be it Broadway, the star, the expectations? Look, you know, when when we were moving the play – you know, we were looking at, at, at different actors. And to me, casting Jane Fonda in the lead was an act of um, – I I felt that this was an actor who could really do the role. I had seen her do um, a movie that she did a long time ago called Pentimento. And it was very funny because when I was writing 33 Variations, I kept going back to that character. The Lillian Hellman character that well, she actually played. the movie is Julia, is it not? It's, it's Julia. based on yes, yes, yes. Sorry, the yeah. movie is called Julia, and I kept going to that character, so there was an affinity already with uh, with with that idea of getting a star, um, and yes, it's very difficult because a lot of the conversation be- becomes about the star and not about the text, you know, and, and and that was that was as you say a new experience because when we took. You know, uh, I am my own wife to Broadway. You know, Jefferson was not a star, so it was all the conversations were about the play. So, so it does change things absolutely. Hmm. At the beginning of the conversation about tectonic, I cited a couple of quotes from you. The the dictionary definition, the art and science of structure, mm-hmm. is what tectonic means, and your quote about the copulation of form and content. I looked up tectonic mm-hmm. and and there are multiple definitions as there often are in dictionaries and mm-hmm. and I I eliminated the specific geological references, but I thought this was very interesting. That tectonic is referring to the forces in the earth that cause movement. <laughs> And so it struck me that even though in point of fact they're talking about the plates of the earth, mm-hmm. 
even that alternate definition of tectonic applies. Absolutely. It's gorgeous. I'm so glad that you that you said that because, you know, when we started tectonic, we were all very young and there was a desire to shake things up and there was a desire to put pressure and create movement, um, you know. And, and so, yes, it's very much at the heart of what we're trying to do, um, this desire to really pose questions about the magic power and beauty of the theatrical space. And I feel like, you know, the way they say, although now it seems like it's not true, that we only use 10% of our brain, I think we've only just begun to understand, you know, what the power of theater is and what and what can happen on the stage. We've mentioned over the course of this interview some other work that you've done, yes. which is not tectonic developed. You mentioned Into the Woods in the introduction. You know, we talked about when you were directing Kreutzer or Naomi Azuka, um, you did a Macbeth in mm-hmm. Central Park. Uh, you did Pe- Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. What is it like for you as someone who has had the opportunity to create work in exactly the manner that you want to create it mm-hmm. to then take an existing text mm-hmm. or a text – written outside of your sphere of influence. Yes. Is it as rewarding to direct that? It's, it's, um, it's a strange gift. You know, number one, when you're in, in the room with somebody like Rajiv Joseph, which is one of the most brilliant writers of his generation, there is a delight. Being a writer and director is a very lonely profession. Very, very lonely. So being with the writer in the room, whether it's somebody of the brilliance of Doug Wright or Rajiv Joseph or Shakespeare, it's it's delicious because it becomes a dialogue. It becomes a dialogue with somebody outside of your head. And so I find it incredibly – I try to, to do one play by myself and then work with other people. I think doing several things that I've originated and developed becomes incredibly taxing and lonely. You have a Facebook page. Yes. I was very struck by one entry on it. Mm. Under religious views, mm-hmm. it says Pixar. <laughs> I believe we share the same <laughs> religious views. <laughs> religious views, <laughs> Jewish and Pixar. But I am wondering why you you say that. Is it merely a lark or is there something more? I think it's it, it's it's a combination of things. It is a lark. And, um, you know, I think that, that for those of us who, you know, theater is – I should have wrote, written theater. Theater is my religion. Uh, I think it was I, – I, I was in a, in a whimsical mood that day. So by the time people go to your Facebook page, by the time they hear this, it may not be there anymore. Yes, maybe it will be th- – I'll go back and change it to theater. So, so but, but, but why Pixar? Because I'm curious because I actually think some of their storytelling is extraordinary. Yes, absolutely. And if you see what they're doing, they too are, are asking formal questions about what can happen on the screen. You know, they've done things that don't look like anything else that anybody else have done. And they're really pushing the boundaries of, of that kind of storytelling. And there is, there is a connection. I never thought about it this much, except now that you're asking. But um, You put something out there publicly. You never know what's going to come <laughs> yes, up. Yes, this is the first interview in which I've ever been asked about my Facebook page. Um, but, but yes, and I think, you know, it, it is partially true that, that having grown up in a yeshiva, it was very interesting because growing up in a yeshiva, you know, the, the quintessential Im- image of a yeshiva 
is uh, a group of young people sitting around a table with books and studying books and understanding books and seeing what is it in books that, you know, there's a rabbi who says that the Bible said this and another rabbi who fights and says, no, this is what happened. And somebody came in to see Gross Indecency and they said the image was very much like a yeshiva, like a, a bunch of people that love erudition and love knowledge and love literature and, and well, and love religion and, and, and the, the, the kind of rigorous delving into an art form is something that I learned for being in a yeshiva. Hmm. Well, thank you for that rigor. Thank you for the plays. And we will look forward to both the complete six-hour Laramie <laughs> project as well as um, Puss in Boots Great. very shortly. Moises Kaufman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Downstage Howard. Center. Thank you very much. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhardt. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online on demand for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and also be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center and the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.